0: You might have heard this new term that's been flying around lately. It's called quiet quitting. It means that a worker is no longer going above and beyond in the workplace and is simply doing the bare minimum that the job requires. That's quiet quitting. Once upon a time, we used to call this doing the fucking job. But now, there's a brand new pejorative for people who don't want to bend the knee and lick the capitalist boot on their throat, when no longer doing unpaid overtime is seen as a form of protest. What a charming dystopia we live in. Wayland Utani would be proud. Rules, restrictions, laws, ethical guidelines, all but forbidding us from moving forward. And this is how we know we've gone too far that it's time for all of us to get together, have a few drinks, and then violently seize the means of production while we begin lining the bourgeoisie up against the wall. Um, is this the boring, peaceful kind to take into the streets? No, the kind with looting and maybe starting a few fires. Yes! In your face, Gandhi! Quiet quitting. How utterly disgusting. As if it's somehow an act of protest to just do the job you're getting paid to do. Imagine being so dependent on wage theft and exploitation of the proletariat that you feel the need to brand it. I have seen a bit of pushback against this term in the last few days, though, which is good. People are trying to reframe it as acting your wage, which is quite good, actually. But I think we're past the point of dialogue here. We need a revolution. It's okay, I can say that. I'm already on several watch lists from doing this show, so you guys don't need to say anything. Just nod along quietly and pretend that you're listening to Robin Thicke or something. If you can't hear what I'm to say. Quiet quitting. How insidious. It's corporate phrasing like that which allows the capitalists to reframe the paradigm, to reframe life. To reframe culture itself. And if it isn't challenged, it's something that just becomes part of culture. To the point where we can't remember a time before that terminology. We can't remember a world without it. Where it is just accepted as fact and will never be challenged again. Because people are born into it and that's the reality that they know. Which is why it needs to be nipped in the bud. Deracinated right now. But, dear listeners, my dear, dear listeners, I wouldn't just agitate for revolution without providing proof. I'm not a Tory, so I will submit to you an example of this kind of corporate rebranding of reality working in the past. An example of how a corporation Managed to reframe society itself to suit its own ends. And this is just one example among thousands, but it's a hell of a roller coaster ride, so strap in. It's Historical Time. Have you ever heard the term diamonds are forever? Of course, who hasn't? It's a phrase that has existed forever. We all know that diamonds are indestructible. Of course they last forever. That's why diamonds cost so much. They're a precious gem that will last until doomsday. A diamond will last forever. Except that isn't quite true. Actually, none of it is true. Diamonds are not indestructible. They're not even particularly durable. They are not rare. They're not precious. Hell, they're not even valuable. And here is why the phrase, Diamonds are forever, is one of the greatest lies ever told. And why all of us should be extra, extra careful when a pithy new phrase enters our collective cultural lexicon. If I were to say to you the words, diamond ring, what do you think of? Try it. Let the first thought come to your mind. Diamond ring. Who here thought of weddings? I'd wager more than most of you. So if diamond rings are so synonymous with the concept of marriage, when did that custom start? How long has it been part of our collective cultural heritage? Have we been giving each other diamond rings during a wedding since the Middle Ages? Was it a Roman custom? Does it go back even further than that? Was it an ancient Sumerian wedding custom? When did we start the diamond ring thing? Have a guess. Have a crack at it. When did diamond rings start becoming a wedding tradition? Who here said 1939? Now, be honest. That's right. Diamonds are not forever. In fact, diamonds are less than a century. As a matter of fact, most of what you've been fed about diamonds is total bullshit. It is one of the most effective propaganda campaigns in the history of the human race, and it is still working. In fact, diamonds are pretty much junk. They're just very well-marketed junk. Did you know that diamonds are not actually made from compressed coal? Yeah, diamonds aren't made from coal. Diamonds are billions of years old. They formed alongside the planet itself. Coal only appeared during the first Carboniferous period, roughly 360 million years ago. Which is a long time ago, sure, but it's a lot less than a billion. It's a common misconception that diamonds are compressed coal, one of the many, many things our teachers got wrong, but diamonds are actually older than coal by a significant margin. And right now, I'm going to do something that I very rarely do, either on this platform or in real life. I'm going to admit to ignorance. Because I only learned that fact while researching this show. I always took it for granted that diamonds were made from compressed coal. And, well, I was... I was... I was... I was... I was you all know what it sounds like when someone, not me, admits that they're wrong, okay? I always thought that diamonds were compressed coal, but they're not. Diamonds are what happens when you get a bunch of carbon, usually graphene, which is quite abundant, and then an extreme amount of heat and pressure crushes it down into the crystalline structure that we know of as a diamond. Which is about the level of accuracy that you're going to get before we start calling this GGT, geology go time. And geologists will tell you that it's a lot more complicated than that, and it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. As Andy Dufresne once said, it's just time and pressure. That's all it takes, really. Pressure and time. This combination of intense heat, pressure, and carbon only occurs deep within the Earth, where there's a whole bunch of heat and pressure to be found. And this crushes carbon down into itty-bitty pieces that we know as diamonds. And sometimes... Due to tectonic or volcanic activity, these little bits of condensed rock are ejected from deep within the bowels of the planet, and they find their way to places where humans will stumble onto them. Essentially, diamonds are just planet pimples, and we've arbitrarily decided that they're valuable. Diamonds, like all precious gems, are measured in carrots. What is a carrot? It's a crazy, arbitrary measurement that is based on complete nonsense. If you've listened to my previous show on measurements, you'll know what I'm talking about, and if you haven't, you should probably do that after this show. A carrot, as it currently stands, is 200 milligrams, which is lovely and metric. But before everyone except Liberia, Myanmar, and the United States adopted metric— a carrot was based on the size of the seed of a carob plant, because all measurements in history were based on what a wizard said. Specifically, carob seeds were used as a basis for measurement because all carob seeds are pretty much the same size, they don't have much variance, and from there we get the term carrot. Carob, carrot, you know how language works. Now, if anyone had ever bothered to look at some carob seeds at any point in history, they'd have realized that carob seeds do vary greatly in size, and thus aren't a good point for basing a metric system around, but imperial measurements have always been the nonsense units of madmen, and why should gemstones be any different? But anyway, that's why we have carrots. And diamonds, of course, are measured in carrots. That's how you know how big your diamond is. Diamonds don't just happen on Earth, either. Space forms diamonds naturally. Like, a lot. There are a lot of diamonds in space. The ingredients for diamonds are, as stipulated, carbon, pressure, and time, and the universe has a hell of a lot of that going around. In fact, a not insignificant portion of the diamonds on Earth were not locally grown, but touched down in meteors. You can get space diamonds. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism space! Diamonds are a lot more common in space than they are on Earth, and they are reasonably common on Earth. On big ass planets like Saturn, it quite literally rains diamonds. Which should be your first clue that maybe diamonds are not as precious as you might think. But more on that later. Saturn is a bit too much of a commute at the moment to make it a worthwhile trip for diamonds, but there are a whole lot of diamonds out there in the black. Now, diamonds are not entirely worthless. They do have some utility. Some. Diamonds are the hardest substance that we know of. Or at least diamonds are the hardest thing that we can get our hands easily on the planet Earth. The universe is a big place filled with crazy things. Technically, the hardest known substance is called nuclear pasta, which is not actually a very al dente pasta, but the crust that occurs within a neutron star, and since having a neutron star anywhere in the vicinity of Earth would make it combust horribly, we're not likely to get our hands on some nuclear pasta anytime soon, so we have to make do with diamonds, the hardest terrestrial material. How we measure the hardness of minerals is actually unexpectedly simple. We basically just send minerals up against each other in the Thunderdome and see who scratches whom until one mineral remains, kind of like the Highlander. Here we are, born to be kings, where the princes of the And that mineral was diamonds. It scratches everything else, and it cannot be scratched in turn. People have been doing this for thousands of years, the ancient historian Pliny the Elder and the ancient ancient historian Theophrastus of Lesboth both recount this method of mineral death matches, but it was codified in 1822 by the German geologist Friedrich Mohs, and thus we have the Mohs Scale of Mineral Hardness, which is, essentially, just a battle of who would win in a fight between two different minerals. So, 1 on the Mohs scale is Talc. 10 on the Mohs scale is Diamonds. 8 on the Mohs scale of Hardness is Jason Statham. So, Diamonds are incredibly tough. Outside of cosmic anomalies, they're the hardest thing that we can get our hands on. And Diamonds can have a bit of value because of this Hardness. We often coat the edges of tools with Diamonds because that way whatever you're cutting or drilling into is going to have to give way before the Diamond does. 80% of all diamonds are actually used for industrial purposes, and most of that is for making tools with which to mine and shape other diamonds. They also do have some niche uses, they're particularly good thermal insulators or heat sinks. Diamonds basically do not transfer heat, so they're very good if you want to keep heat in one place, but it's just not cost effective to do this because of reasons that we're about to get into. Diamonds will, of course, begin to transfer heat once enough heat gets applied to them. If you chuck a diamond into a volcano, then the volcano is going to win. But for most purposes, you can consider a diamond to be a good insulator. So diamonds do have some value. But are they rare? Fuck no. Everything about diamonds being a precious gem is built on a THRONE OF LIES. Diamonds are not rare. They are not precious. In fact, diamonds are intrinsically worthless. What, Damo, have you the brain worms? Did you just say that diamonds are intrinsically worthless? Yes. Yes, I did. Because they are. They're just shiny rocks. But don't take my word for it. Here's a quote from the magazine The Independent, from the 13th of February, 1999, the day before Valentine's Day. In the article I'm quoting, the Independent were interviewing Nicky Oppenheimer, the chairman of the De Beers Diamond Corporation, and the son of Henry Oppenheimer, former chairman of De Beers, and the grandson of Ernest Oppenheimer, former, former chairman of De Beers. So Nicky Oppenheimer, he's a guy who knows his diamonds. And Nicky Oppenheimer, in his capacity as the chairman of the De Beers Diamond Corporation, said, and I quote, quote, diamonds are intrinsically worthless. End quote. And he would know because diamonds are his business. The company that he is the CEO of, De Beers, they own almost all of the diamonds. So if anyone's gonna know, it's Nicky Oppenheimer. But again, This is a point that we're building to. Diamonds are not rare. For one thing, we can straight up make diamonds. Synthetic diamonds are actually identical to the real thing. They're not particularly hard to make, just carbon and pressure. Diamonds are kind of like a frittata. Do you have eggs? Yes. Then you can make a frittata. Do you have carbon and pressure? Yes. You can start churning out diamonds. The technology to essentially magic diamonds out of thin air was invented in the late 19th century and it was commonplace by the 1930s. Diamonds are just compressed carbon and carbon is everywhere. Basically, anything you can touch is made out of carbon. You're made out of carbon. I'm made out of carbon. If you squish pretty much anything down with enough heat and pressure, baby, you got diamonds. And synthetic diamonds are... And let's emphasize this point. Synthetic diamonds are identical to the diamonds that you pull out of the ground. There is no difference at all. It's just that there isn't a lot of money in things that you can magic out of thin air. So the De Beers Diamond Corporation and jewelers all over the world, they conspired to say that synthetic diamonds don't count because reasons. And only the diamonds that come out of the ground, only those ones are the actual real valuable diamonds, because, hell, we've got a monopoly on all the ones in the ground, and we're making money off them, so the fake ones don't count. Synthetic diamonds and natural diamonds have exactly the same value. It's just that synthetic diamonds are sold at the real price, and quote-unquote natural diamonds are priced by whatever the fuck someone came up with on the spot. And that isn't me doing a bit, that's how the price of diamonds actually works. The people who mine and sell the diamonds get together and they say, well, I think diamonds should cost this much money, and that's the price of diamonds. There isn't any other metric involved. The only reason that diamonds are in any way expensive is because the De Beers Corporation has a near Total monopoly on every aspect of the supply and distribution of diamonds. And they artificially jack up the prices because that's how they make their money. De Beers has warehouses all over the globe, chock full of millions and millions of diamonds, just sitting in crates. These diamonds are in these warehouses simply to keep them out of circulation creating artificial scarcity. This is the only reason that diamonds are considered rare. It's the only reason diamonds are valuable. Whatever the amount of money you spend on a diamond, if you walk out of the shop, turn around and walk straight back in and try and sell that diamond back to the jeweler, they will give you less than pennies on the dollar they will buy that diamond off you with coins. Because diamonds are not expensive. You just paid a shitload of money for it because of a century of psychological conditioning. Because of one of the greatest propaganda campaigns of all time. Because a company called De Beers, has psychologically conditioned most of the planet to believe that a relatively common rock is one of the most expensive products on Earth, and holy shit did they manage to pull it off. Breaking this level of conditioning is no easy feat. There is a century worth of cultural inertia, so it's going to take some effort. So I'm going to be saying this a lot during this show, and hopefully you'll get so sick of me saying it that you'll join the rebellion. Diamonds are not precious. If you were to come across a diamond in the wild, you probably wouldn't know what you were looking at. And you certainly wouldn't think it was valuable. Because diamonds look like shit. They're just a lump of crystallized carbon, like quartz, They're dirty and smoky and not at all sparkly. They are not what you think of when you think of a diamond. The only way that diamonds get all pretty and sparkly is when someone puts the time and effort into cutting the precise geometric angles with which to split light into prismatic rays and polish the stone so that it doesn't look like Charlie Sheen leaving a public cubicle. I don't know, man. I was banging 7-gram rocks and finishing them because that's how I roll. I have one speed. I have one gear. Go! there's a reason that the phrase a diamond in the rough exists. And it's because you wouldn't know a natural diamond from any of the other rocks that sit around it, unless you were some kind of geologist. It's only when you start to wash and polish them that you get to see the sparkly bit, and even then it takes a lot of effort. The first real mention of diamonds that we get in history comes from roughly the 600s in India, and they weren't really a big deal. It actually goes back slightly further than that. Pliny the Elder mentions them in his Histories. Again, they aren't a big deal, so we don't really take notice. Diamonds don't really start getting valuable until relatively recently. Because of how much effort goes into making them actually look good. For most of history, the only place that you could get diamonds was from India or Brazil. And even then, the entire global supply amounted to a couple of dozen kilograms worth of diamonds every year. They were crazy expensive because they were crazy rare. Only royalty were rich enough to be able to afford diamonds, which is why they adorn so many crowns and coronets. They're a sign of the lavish largesse of the bourgeoisie and royalty. And when there are only a few of a thing in the world, that tends to make that thing expensive so only the super-rich were able to afford diamonds. Back in the day, diamonds actually were precious. They actually lived up to the hype, simply through sheer scarcity. It's a completely subjective thing, but you may or may not consider diamonds to be the prettiest gemstone. Whether you like the white clarity of a diamond over, say, a sapphire or an emerald or a ruby or any other precious gem, that's entirely subjective. Personally, I don't. I like a bit of colour, but to each their own. But because you couldn't just get diamonds easily, they were super expensive, and thus a good way of showing off how mega-rich you were to anyone that couldn't afford diamonds, which was pretty much everyone. And that, in and of itself, made diamonds plenty pretty enough for anyone who could afford them. They were a sign of wealth. Then, in 1870, it was discovered that South Africa is practically made out of diamonds. This made diamonds essentially worthless overnight. This was inconvenient for the owners of the diamonds, because their ostentatious display of wealth was no longer such an ostentatious display of wealth. But these people were rich. They could move on to the next big thing. But if you were in the business of supplying and selling diamonds, this South African diamond discovery was utterly catastrophic. I've complained a lot during various shows that the act of trying to pass history makes any kind of fidelity almost impossible, and I think that this show might be the most egregious example I've come across, because I want to roughly mention the history of diamonds before expanding into the diamond trade, and specifically the De Beers company, but the history leading up to all of this is so incredibly complicated, which is another of my catchphrases I know, but There is a rich web of history that I just can't have time to get into, so I'll just say this. In the mid to late 19th century, there was a diamond rush in South Africa. South Africa, the country as we know it today, wasn't a thing back then. So when I say South Africa, I'm talking as in the lower half of the continent of Africa. As in, take the continent of Africa, split it roughly horizontally, and the bottom half of that is what I'm calling South Africa. And if you're familiar with the history of that region leading up to about yesterday, you know how crazy complex it gets. And we're just going to have to accept that as the context without going any deeper, because if we even scratch the surface of why there was a diamond rush in Africa and what it meant for the people living there in this time, then this show is going to blow out to 22 episodes as we explore the formation of almost every modern African nation, what they used to be before colonialism, politics between the European colonial powers, two Boer Wars, the invention of the machine gun. We can throw apartheid in there too, which leads us to Nelson Mandela. We can chuck in Frank Sinatra, the band queen. You can see why I might want to steer clear of this and try and keep things under control. So just know that there's always more to the story, and I'm sorry to anyone whose truth was cut for the narrative. And if you're disappointed with this approach that I'm taking, just know that you can't be more disappointed than me, because that part of the story has gun trains in it, and I had to cut an entire segment on gun trains. Trains. With guns. Guns that had names. Names like Long Cecil. So we're all sacrificing here, okay? Touché, Cecil. And it means that the incredibly Byzantine history of the formation of modern African states is something we'll be glossing over today. Sorry. And while I'm doing caveats, here's another. This show will also not be covering the concept and history of conflict diamonds, or blood diamonds. That's an entirely different serpent's nest of history, Blood diamonds are their own thing, and this show today is going to be more about how not every diamond is a blood diamond, but no diamond is ethical. We thought we were fighting communism, but in the end, it was all about who gets what, you know? Ivory, oil, gold, diamonds. So one day I decided, fuck it, you know? Alright, I think that's enough of a waiver. Oh, and always remember, please, I am not a historian. Please do not confuse me for one. I'm glad we're all having fun here, but historians have to go to university and study, and they have rules and ethics and icky things like that, and they don't get to say fuck as much as I do, and that isn't fun at all. So uh, I have a lot of new fans coming in, and I love that. Welcome. Glad to have you here, but please do not confuse me for a historian. I am a clown. All right. Standard disclaimer done. On with the show. So our story is going to begin with a dude by the name of Cecil Rhodes. (laughs) Our story begins... Did I just set a new record there? What are we, like 30 minutes in? Our story begins... Ah, this show's fun. We have fun here, don't we? So our story is going to begin with a dude by the name of Cecil Rhodes. You may or may not have heard of Cecil Rhodes... And that's fine, although if you don't recognize the name, you should probably read more. Or listen to this show, which you already are, so carry on. But even if you've never heard of Cecil Rhodes before, I'm going to wager that his name sounds somewhat familiar. Even if you don't know why. Have you ever heard of a Rhodes Scholar? Yeah, that's the Rhodes it refers to. Cecil Rhodes' estate pays for the Rhodes Scholarship. And he is also the reason why a large portion of Southern Africa used to be known as Rhodesia. But that's a rabbit hole of depressing racist history, I'll try not to fall too far down. But if you've ever seen the nation of South Africa abbreviated to RSA, like at the Olympics or something, it's because of Cecil Rhodes'. Cecil Rhodes is described in history books as a, quote, controversial figure, end quote, which is historian code for super-fucking-racist. And in my capacity of not being a historian, I'm allowed to actually say super-fucking-racist. 90% of the time when you see the term controversial figure, it's a code word for massive racist. The other 10% of the time, it means that they had some truly whacked out insane views that probably included racism, but the racism was a small part of their insanity. Samuel Morse jumps to mind here, but I always have to make sure I have shows for the future. So Cecil Rhodes, controversial figure, was a 19th century British colonialist, so of course he's massively racist. But Rhodes, he managed to be racist even through the lens of Victorian industrialism. He was, after all, a controversial figure. Cecil Rhodes was born in 1853 in a village in Hertfordshire in England by the unlikely name of Bishop's Stortford. In what sounds like someone was trying to come up with the most English name ever, or some kind of imaginary sexual position, or both, but Bishop's Stortford is actually a real place that exists. Bishop's Stortford. I can't believe that England is a real place. That can't be real. As a child, Cecil Rhodes was both anemic and asthmatic, which was not conducive to living in England at the time, since there was literally no air anywhere in England at that time that didn't have arsenic or poop in it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, a few episodes ago I covered this in a show called The Great Stink. Check it out and boost my metrics, that'd be great. But what you need to know is that the Industrial Revolution was not a good time for pollution, and pollution isn't great for asthmatics. So Cecil's family decided to send him to South Africa, where they hoped that the warmer climate would better suit his ailments. That part isn't really important to the story, but it's worth keeping in mind since most of Cecil Rhodes' life will be based around his rock-solid belief that white people are racially superior, and Cecil himself was allergic to air. As ever, the ones who preach eugenics are rarely the genes that you want to keep. When Cecil Rhodes got to South Africa, he worked on his family's cotton farm, and I'll let you fill in the gaps on that one. The cotton thing didn't pan out, though, so Cecil and his brother Herbert bought themselves a diamond mine. Because as with everything in history, it's very hard to find anyone who accomplished anything without being rich first. I don't care what example you're about to type into the comments, they were all rich before they got to do things. If you're poor, you've already lost the game. There's a really upbeat message for all the kiddies out there. If you're not already rich, better luck next life. Don't hate the messenger, hate the system. To be more accurate, first, the Rhodes brothers made an absolute fortune by selling water pumps to prospectors looking for diamonds, and then they used their insane profits from this to buy the claims and mines of these prospectors as they began to lose the funds needed to continue. This is free market capitalism at its finest, and the best proof of concept that if you want to get rich during a gold rush, you don't pan for gold, you sell shovels. Well, Cecil Rhodes made a shitload of money by selling water pumps to miners, which is almost the same thing as selling shovels. Hey everyone, Future Nemo here. I think I need to make this a bit clearer. So, the way that mining works is that If you wanted to make your fortune in diamonds or gold or whatever comes out of the ground, you used to go prospecting for it. So you'd buy up a patch of land, and the size of that patch of land depended on how much you were willing to pay, and then that land was yours to do with as you wish. And you hoped that you'd come across some shiny stuff in the ground that made you rich, but it wasn't a sure bet, that's why it's called prospecting. So usually what would happen is that you would borrow money to buy the land, or claim, hoping that the shinies that you dug out of the land would be able to pay off your debts and then more. But at that point, the whole thing kind of becomes a race. Will you find the goods before you completely run out of money and the creditors come looking to take your thumbs? Sometimes you get lucky and it's all right there in the first place you look and everything is hunky-dory. But other times, you just simply run out of money before you find the goodies in the ground. And at that point, the only thing you have left to do is to sell your claim and your equipment to try and recoup some of the losses, and then watch as someone with more disposable money to throw at the project finds the fortune that you were so close to catching yourself. The modern concept of the startup works in pretty much the same way. So Cecil Rhodes very quickly becomes one of the richest people in the world. He was making an absolute fortune by renting mining equipment to miners, and when those miners ran out of funds, he was buying their mines himself, which if nothing else gave him a lot of land, but importantly, it was land that was potentially filled with diamonds. But let's take a little closer look at Cecil Rhodes, because the guy was a fucking lunatic. And there's nothing more that HGT loves than a historical lunatic. So during all of this, Cecil Rhodes goes to Oxford College, because if you were rich, that's what you did. But Rhodes only stays there for one term, because education just wasn't for him. He much preferred the idea of gutting the earth to make obscene amounts of money. He figured, why should I have to learn things when I already have all of the money? and that line of thinking is as old as civilization itself. So he only lasted a couple of months at Oxford in the year of 1874, but it did make an impression on him. Because every class in Oxford at the time was basically an in-depth course on how awesome white people were, and how it was their destiny to enslave the rest of the planet, and Cecil Rhodes was all about that. They didn't say it like that, of course, but... They came close and everyone really kind of got what they were saying. They used terms like British exceptionalism and noblesse oblige, but it all means the same thing, and Cecil Rhodes was all about that. So much so that later in life he would ensure that there was an endowment in his will that paid for promising young racist Tories to go to Oxford to learn all about how awesome it is to be white. And I strongly encourage everyone to go and check out the website for the Rhodes Institution. It is paragraph after paragraph of, well, a lot has changed in the last century, so please kindly stop mentioning Cecil Rhodes because he was a controversial figure. Let's just focus on the scholarship itself. Jolly good, nothing to see here. And while we're talking about the Rhodes Scholarship, here's something that's bugged me for years. When supporters of former Australian Prime Minister, Onion Enthusiast, and noted imbecile Tony Abbott try to convince people that Abbott is not, in fact, an imbecile because he was a Rhodes Scholar, keep this one in your back pocket. Tony Abbott was given a Rhodes Scholarship for rowing. He was good at rowing a boat. His Rhodes Scholarship came about not because of any intelligence or compassion or basic human emotions. Tony Abbott was a Rhodes Scholar because he was an efficient means of propulsion. But back to Cecil Rhodes. While he was at Oxford, Rhodes also joined the Freemasons, which is certainly something, but he left when the Freemasons were not racist enough for him, which is an even bigger something. In his later life, Cecil Rhodes would actually try and start his own secret society that was kind of like the Freemasons, but more focused on how the British should conquer the entire world and enslave the lesser races, but he never actually got it off the ground before he died. Although it should be said that Tony Abbott gave it a red-hot crack. Hardline right-wing Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who rose to power promising to be pro-business and religiously anti-immigration literally religiously anti-immigration. Jesus knew uh, that there was a place for everything and and it is not necessarily everyone's place to come to Australia. All right, back to the story. It's the middle of the South African diamond rush. Cecil Rhodes is doing very well for himself in this period. He's selling mining supplies and buying up a lot of property. But Cecil Rhodes doesn't just want a shitload of money, he wants all the money in the universe. But I wasn't in charge of the money. Cecil was. So in 1874, he leaves Oxford, and he goes back to South Africa, and he buys himself an honest-to-God diamond mine. And he makes a lot of money off that because it's a mine full of diamonds. There's a clue there. And he uses the money from that to buy another diamond mine, and another and another, and another, and another, and there were no consumer laws to stop him building this monopoly because it was the Victorian era and capitalism was absolutely unchecked. Libertarians, go and read some Charles Dickens. This is the world that you fap to. Do you still want it? In the year 1880, Cecil Rhodes, who owned a fuckload of diamond mines in Africa, teamed up with a minor shipping magnate who also owned a fuckload of diamond mines, a guy named Charles Rudd, And together, they formed a company called De Beers Consolidated Mining, which owned two fuckloads of diamond mines, which I'm told is quite a lot of diamond mines. Exact figures vary, but together, Rhodes and Rudd owned most of the world's diamond supply. As in, they owned way more of the diamonds than they didn't. So, quick recap. Diamonds were originally nothing rocks of no value, but then jewelers learned how to polish and cut them, and then diamonds started getting valuable because they were pretty and shiny, and more importantly, they were rare. Diamonds, where do you get them? Well, India. But like anything coming from the subcontinent, that's easier said than done. And I might as well throw this in now because it's as good a time as any. The reason that the subcontinent is called the subcontinent is because of the Himalayas. The world's largest mountain range separates India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, all of those countries are cut off from the rest of Europe and Africa and Asia by an impossibly large mountain range. And because this mountain range is so hard to navigate, it might as well be an ocean, so it's kind of like being its own continent. A subcontinent, if you will. So that's why things be like they do. So, diamonds occur naturally over most of the planet but they cluster particularly in South America and Australia. But depending on when you are in history, these places are either harder to get to than India or not yet discovered by white people, so they're still very hard to get, is my point. So through their relative scarcity, diamonds were very expensive and there was good trade to be had. Then... In the mid-1800s, someone discovers an absolute shitload of diamonds in Africa, and everyone flocks there to make their fortune, and Cecil Rhodes is making a fortune, selling mining tools to them, and then buying up their claims when they go bust. The other richest deposit in the world for diamonds is actually the Kimberley region in Western Australia. Not to be confused with the Kimberley region in South Africa, although it might actually be worth confusing them. Australia is the only place in the world where you get pink diamonds, although they run the gamut of various shades of pink. What's interesting is that the diamonds were only discovered in Western Australia in the mid-20th century, and everyone was really surprised by that, because it wasn't until the 1960s that people realized that all of the continents actually used to be connected to each other, and that South Africa and Australia used to be the same place until it got torn down the middle some millions of years ago. So while we know now in our future sense that it's not strange that diamonds would be found in South Africa and Australia, it was a pretty crazy concept back then. I just wanted to throw that little teaser in for a future show, Continental Drift, because it's insane to me that continental drift theory only became a recognized science in the 1960s, and it wasn't initially accepted as a real science because the person who proved it was a woman. Anyway, where were we? Diamonds, South Africa, crazy racists. All right. So diamonds start flowing out of South Africa in such a vast quantity that the relative price of diamonds begins to drop significantly. There's an oversaturation of the market, which is basic economics, supply and demand. And during this, Cecil Rhodes and Charles Rudd, the original diamond hands, they buy the dip. Not only do they continue to mine diamonds from their many diamond mines, they buy up all of the diamonds they can whenever they go on the market. And this makes diamonds even cheaper, since there is such a willing customer to buy them. So Rhodes and Rudd buy more, which forces the prices down even more, which means that they buy even more, and it goes so on and so forth. And because of the dip in the price of diamonds, more and more prospectors are getting forced to quit because they can't make ends meet, not with the limited returns on the diamonds that they do find. So Rhodes and Rudd, they're buying up all of these diamond claims as well, and Cecil Rhodes begins to quietly amass a portfolio which includes most of the diamond trade coming out of Africa at the time. He's building a monopoly. Eventually, the diamond trade boils down to only a few players, with Cecil Rhodes and Charles Rudd controlling the lion's share. And from this small cadre of people still in the diamond game, those that didn't fold, business is actually booming. They are making more money than God. But they all collectively realized that they shared one communal problem. There are so many diamonds coming out of Africa in the late 19th century that the price of diamonds is dropping and will continue to drop because of the oversaturation of the market. And they don't want this because it would be much better for them if the price of diamonds remained high, as it had through most of history. So this group of diamond producers has a meeting, presumably in some form of underground bunker or haunted castle or something, and they collectively hatch a plan. They determine that the best way to continue having more money than God is to actually stop competing with each other and driving down the price of diamonds. Competition is good for the consumer, but it's bad for business. So they decide to just stop doing it. Instead, they're going to cooperate with each other and artificially stifle the supply of diamonds, ensuring that they will always be expensive. And the common people, they're not going to be outraged about this because they're never going to know. As long as nobody could ever get diamonds anywhere else, Why would anyone know what the actual price of a diamond was? They could set the price to whatever they wanted it to be. So these diamond companies, they all consolidated into one company, monopolizing everything to do with the diamond trade, the mining, transport, distribution, and sale of diamonds, everything. That way they could control every aspect and make sure that nobody tried to undercut them, a process commonly referred to as having a healthy fucking economy. Oh, we shan't be having any of that, oh god no. And they named this monolith, De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. Of course Cecil Rhodes knew how shady all of this looked, because it looked, and was, shady as all hell and unhealthy to a functioning economic system or human society. So De Beers created a number of subsidiaries and shell companies within their network to give the appearance that there were multiple players in the Diamond game, all competing against each other, when in fact, they were all just De Beers in a fake moustache. Hello, my name is Mr. Snrub, and I come from, uh, some place far away. Yes, that'll do. And if you're thinking that shell corporations and insider trading are illegal... Well, you're absolutely right. There are a number of laws in pretty much any country on earth that you want to pick that make this illegal as all hell. Now. But this is the turn of the 20th century. laissez faire capitalism is in full swing, and the economic socialism that terrifies a lot of the people who rely on economic socialism was yet to be codified in most countries, so De Beers could get away with one of the shadiest economic crimes in the history of man. Just a friendly reminder that Libertarians are literally the worst people on Earth, and I dearly hope there's a hell just so I get to see Ayn Rand burning in it. So almost all of the world's diamonds are now supplied by De Beers. And when I say almost all, I mean somewhere in the vicinity of 95%. There might have been a couple of boutique players here or there, but for the most part, if you bought diamonds, you were dealing with De Beers, because laissez-faire capitalism is fun, isn't it? Oh, I almost forgot to mention why it was called De Beers. In the mid-1800s, there were two Dutch brothers who went to South Africa to make their fortune by panning for diamonds, as was the style at the time. And their names were Diedrich and Johan De Beer. They bought a small plot of land in Orange Free State, and they went looking for diamonds. And unlike most people, they actually found them. Diamonds! Yes! We're rich! What a happy story for these two plucky Dutchmen. What a real rags-to-riches fairy tale. Except... For the fact that when the British Empire found out that these Dutchmen had a property with diamonds on it, they promptly said, right, we'll be taking that, and the De Beers brothers were told to go and fuck themselves. They were technically bought out for £6,000, which is kind of a lot for the time, but that kind of implies that they had a choice in the matter. And if they did, they probably wouldn't have sold, because their property would later go on to become what's known as the Big Hole, or Tim Quilmean one of the largest diamond mines on earth. But hey, 6,000 pounds. But Oh yeah, the mine, the Tim mine, or the Big Hole, that was bought by Cecil Rhodes. The British robber barons in general, and Cecil Rhodes in particular, they decided to name their new diamond cartel, De Beers, as a sort of final fuck you to the two people they'd just shafted out of the most immensely valuable mineshaft in the history of mineshafts. And that's why it's called De Beers, because calling it Rural Britannia was just a bit on the nose, even for these guys. So Cecil Rhodes, head of De Beers Consolidated Mining Limited, he now has a monopoly on everything diamond related. But he's not an idiot. He knows people aren't going to like this when they find out about it. That's why De Beers Consolidated Mining Limited goes by a few other names to give it the illusion that there's some kind of free market. De Beers originally consolidated in South Africa, where it's known as De Beers. But in London, it's the creatively named Diamond Trading Company. In Israel, it's the much more sinister Diamond Syndicate. In Antwerp, it's the CSO, or Central Selling Organization. And in the rest of Africa, it's the Diamond Development Company and Mining Services Incorporated. And these companies have outposts in all of the major diamond trading hubs in the world like Sanctuaries in Doctor Strange, New York, London, Antwerp, Tel Aviv, Hong Kong, and Sydney. But the thing about all of these companies, they're actually all De Beers. They are all the same thing. Like I said, they're just wearing a fancy mustache. De Beers controls diamonds, and if you were not De Beers, then De Beers shall not suffer you to live. And that's pretty much how the De Beers Diamond Company comes into existence. I'm going to leave Cecil Rhodes here because he only gets way more complex from then on out. He goes into politics and there are a couple of important wars. He becomes the Prime Minister of South Africa. It's all very nuanced and highly emotive and Africa is still feeling the effects of Cecil Rhodes' life, but it's not actually about diamonds anymore. So let's just say that he was a controversial figure. I think Mark Twain actually said it best, as he so often said things best, when he said of Cecil Rhodes, and I quote, I admire him, I frankly confess it, and when his time comes, I shall buy a piece of the rope as a keepsake. And that's why he's the greatest satirist of all time. For about a century, if you were a diamond producer who was somehow not aligned with De Beers, or the thousand names De Beers called themselves, then you'd be asked to join their Borg collective. And if you refused, well, De Beers understood. It was absolutely in your right to be an independent diamond producer and introduce some competition into the industry. But then De Beers would do a bit of investigation to find out exactly what type of diamonds you were selling the very particular size and cut of those diamonds, and then De Beers would flood the market with those exact diamonds. And when you inevitably went bankrupt, they'd be there at the fire sale to purchase the corpse, and then your company joined De Beers anyway. It's a strategy as old as time itself. It's the Marcus Crassus approach to capitalism. So, using all of these shell corporations, which were designed to look like independent operators, what De Beers was able to do was just conjure up an imaginary number of whatever the hell they felt like diamonds should be priced at that particular day, set the price of diamonds to that number, and to anyone on the outside, it would look like the market itself was setting the price of diamonds. To anyone who didn't know the staggeringly immoral shit going on behind closed doors, it would look like all of these competing diamond companies had undersold each other to come up with the minimum price for diamonds, which was still really high, but people would say, well, I guess if they could be sold any cheaper, then somebody would be selling them for that low price, that's how capitalism's supposed to work, so I guess this is just how much diamonds are actually worth. And, of course, all of it was a fiction. De Beers would have some of their companies sell diamonds for slightly more than the average, and some of their companies would sell them for slightly less, so it looked like the fluctuations of an actual competitive market, but it was all just a facade. Once again, with feeling, because De Beers had such a monopoly over every facet of the diamond industry, they were able to set the price for diamonds to whatever the hell they felt like. The price of diamonds was completely arbitrary. They just sat around in an office one day eating rotisserie chicken and said, I don't know, diamonds cost this much, and so it was. That's the price of diamonds. Well, what price should we set the diamond market at today? I think we'll keep it expensive. Jolly good. Here, let's all have a condor egg omelette. The actual supply and demand of diamonds no longer mattered because De Beers controlled all of the supply. All of it. To quote The Atlantic in 1982, quote, De Beers proved to be the most successful cartel arrangement in the annals of modern commerce. End quote. Are you all mad yet? Because you should be. There's no market, there's no pressure, there's no macroeconomics. The economics of diamonds was explicitly set in a De Beers boardroom by a few executives sitting around a table and going, ha ha ha, diamond prices go By the time Cecil Rhodes died in 1902, De Beers controlled over 90% of the world's diamond supply. 90%. But De Beers lacked something crucial. There was one particularly large diamond mine that De Beers didn't own, which in itself is rather surprising. And back then, this diamond mine was known as the Premier Mine. And today, it is known as the Cullinan Mine because it's in Cullinan, so big shock there. Back in the day, it was called the Premier Mine. And you're going to see why. In 1905, this mine spat out the so-called Cullinan diamond, the biggest diamond on the planet. And for reference, a big diamond is anything over about 400 carats. That's what you consider a pretty big diamond. The Cullinan diamond is 3,106 carats. That's one big-ass diamond. And the Cullinan mine, a.k.a. the premier mine, is also the only place in the world where you can get blue diamonds. So it's quite the prize. And for many, many years, De Beers had attempted to buy the Premier Mine. But the owners of the Premier Mine refused to sell it to De Beers because they didn't want De Beers to have an absolute monopoly. They should just have to content themselves with 90% of the market instead of 100% And the people that owned the Premier Mine believed that there should be at least someone somewhere in the world moving diamonds who wasn't associated with De Beers. So they refused to sell this mine to De Beers. And instead, they sold the Premier Mine to the newly minted American concern known as the Anglo-American Company and its founder, Ernest Oppenheimer. And if you're a particularly astute listener, you might just now be wondering, hang on, Oppenheimer, that name seems familiar. Wasn't there a quote earlier in the show from De Beers chairman Nicky Oppenheimer? Am I remembering correctly? Ding, 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 ding. ding. Yes, you are. Nicky Oppenheimer is Ernest Oppenheimer's grandson. So I guess you already know where this is going but we're going to have to do it anyway for transparency. Not wanting to contribute to the De Beers monopoly, the premier mine was sold to Ernest Oppenheimer and the Anglo-America Company, which instantly made Ernest Oppenheimer one of the richest men on the planet. And he immediately used this money to buy a controlling stake in the De Beers Corporation. In 1926, Ernest Oppenheimer was the second largest shareholder in De Beers, second only to a guy named Solly Joel. And as it would happen, Solly Joel and Ernest Oppenheimer were best friends and had been conspiring from the very beginning to close this hole in the De Beers monopoly, so as lead shareholder, Solly Joel nominated Oppenheimer as chairman. And as second largest shareholder. Ernest Oppenheimer seconded the motion for him to become chairman, so now Ernest Oppenheimer was now in charge of the De Beers Corporation, and the largest competing mine, the one the owners of this mine had explicitly not wanted to be part of the De Beers Collective, was in fact absorbed into the De Beers Collective. Is anyone here still a fan of capitalism? So now we're in the Roaring Twenties. Everyone is showing off their extravagant Gatsby-level wealth and doing it by buying heinously overpriced diamonds from a company that arbitrarily sets the price of diamonds every day and they have decided that the price is going to be expensive just like it was yesterday. Ernest Oppenheimer locked everyone who dealt with De Beers aka the Anglo-America Company aka the Diamond Consortium aka anyone involved with diamonds Anyone who wanted to deal with them was locked into an exclusivity contract. Oppenheimer made it so that you couldn't source diamonds from anyone except De Beers. They locked down the entire industry. For most of the 20th century, here's what the diamond trade looked like. First, a De Beers company would rip diamonds out of the guts of the earth. Then another De Beers company would buy the diamonds then that company would decide how many diamonds they wanted to release into the world and how many they wanted to stash in a warehouse. Then, yet another De Beers company would appraise the diamonds and decide how much those diamonds were worth. This number was presumably pulled out of a bingo tumbler. The diamonds were then sold to jewelers and diamond dealers, usually operating out of the big centers like New York or Antwerp. And these dealers were themselves De Beers, operating under various agents, and they sold the diamonds at the made-up price, and nobody had any idea to think any differently, because that's how it was always done. Now remember, this is in 1926, the Roaring Twenties. The good times are going to roll forever, right? There's no looming economic crisis that I can think of coming up in 1929. Nothing springs to mind there. There is about to be a bit of a bad time for De Beers and the world of diamonds. Well, it's going to be a bad time for everyone on planet Earth, and if anything, the executives at De Beers would have fared better than pretty much anyone else on the planet, but hey, who's counting? So the Great Depression happens. Not much you can do about that, right? It's kind of hard to gouge people for their diamond money when there is literally no money anywhere in the world. But there's another blow about to hit De Beers at about this time as well. Diamonds start popping up in places that De Beers doesn't have a controlling stake in. Places like Australia and Siberia and Brazil. This pisses off the Oppenheimers because they don't like people having access to diamonds through anyone that isn't them diamonds begin to saturate the market once again. And this is bad news for De Beers, because not only do they want to restrict the flow of diamonds to artificially drive up demand, they need everyone to think that diamonds are super rare for this entire scam to work. And you can't have lots of diamonds out there running around destroying the illusion. So the De Beers strategy is to get ahead of all of this and to tap in, to a relatively untapped market at the time. And this market is the United States of America. They did this because, A, the US is huge with a lot of people and a lot of money, and B, because the US has, relatively speaking, a lot less cultural baggage than most places in the world. Getting diamonds to take off in Europe, or at least for everyone to buy diamonds, was bloody hard work because of the centuries of cultural inertia involved. Diamonds were associated with monarchy and with nobility and with largesse, and Europe has a complicated history with monarchies. It's hard selling an expensive product associated with royalty to countries with a track record of revolution. But America? The Land of Opportunity didn't have that problem. Sure, they'd fought a revolution, but it's not like they ever saw the king that they were fighting, They were fighting cross-continental, which is reductive, of course, but it gets the point across. For some reason, contemporary Americans have this weird fascination with the British royal family, and De Beers has been exploiting that for decades. How do you think Queen Elizabeth gets most of her diamonds? De Beers gives them to her as product placement. Elizabeth Windsor is one of the biggest who in history, and for some reason, nobody is allowed to talk about it. She is quite literally the world's largest landowner. She owns, personally, she owns 6.6 billion acres of the planet that we live on, and she has, hundreds of times, used her monarchical veto over legislation to ensure that she stays the richest landowner in the world. Bezos and Musk are rookies compared to Betty, and we should absolutely eat her first, but for some reason she keeps getting a pass. Anyway, back to Diamonds. Ernest Oppenheimer, CEO of De Beers, sends his son Harry to New York to meet with the advertising agency nwa N.W.A.R. at the time was one of the premier advertising agencies in the world. At this stage, they had already coined the phrase, when it rains, it pours, and that was from Morton Salt. Uh, they came up with the marketing campaign for Camel Cigarettes, which was back in the Dark Ages you were allowed to advertise that kind of thing, and they advertised it well. But in the future, A.R. is going to come up with bangers like reach out and touch someone for AT&T and be all you can be for the U.S. Army. So they've got a slogan in them. NWA is one of the primary inspirations for the agency of Serling Cooper and Mad Men. So Harry Oppenheimer goes to New York and meets with NWA and he tells Aya that De Beers are willing to give an exclusive contract to Ayer, plus, fully fund all research and development of advertising strategies and market research if Ayer could boost diamond sales for De Beers. NWA, of course, jumped at the staggering amount of money being thrown at them. So the question that was presented to NWA was, how do we get people to buy diamonds? Which also came with the unspoken caveat of, why the fuck would anyone ever want to buy a diamond? Because diamonds are useless, worthless rocks. But the madmen, they're a canny bunch. And more than perhaps anyone else in history, these people knew how to hack the human brain. How do you get people to do something as irrational as spend a shitload of money on a worthless rock? Well, turns out it's actually quite easy. You hack into the most irrational part of the human brain. The emotion people call love. In a multi-pronged strategy across newspapers, radio, the newly minted medium of talking movies, and even a series of lectures at high schools across America, they spruked the message that diamonds are the only way that a man can express the emotion humans call love. And, of course, the bigger and more expensive the diamond, the more love you have to give. Nobody ever outright said that having a smaller diamond meant that somebody loved you less, but everyone kind of put that together themselves. And I feel like I need to put this very plainly, just so it's all out there and everyone is under no illusions. There is not, nor has there ever been, a traditional custom of a diamond ring being part of an engagement or a wedding. Some cultures, and I stress... Some, like the Romans and the Vikings, have a history of exchanging rings as part of a wedding, but nowhere in history has the diamond ever been a part of it. The whole diamond ring thing was invented by N.W. and De Beers as a ploy to sell diamonds. It is not a wedding tradition. You could just as easily say that the traditional wedding symbol is a fidget spinner and a plate of chicken nuggets. It has exactly the same amount of historical and cultural significance as a diamond ring. That is to say, none. It's like me saying that you should propose to your sweetheart by exchanging episodes of this show because that would directly benefit me. And if you don't, it's because you're a non-person who doesn't deserve companionship and you will die alone and unloved staring at the void and looking for sucker. It's exactly the same thing. The 1947 strategy briefing from NWA is a matter of public record now. You can go and read it. And it states, in part, that, quote... We are dealing with a problem in mass psychology. We seek to strengthen the tradition of the diamond engagement ring to make it a psychological necessity." End quote. A psychological necessity. If you watch pretty much any Hollywood movie from this period, that is the 30s and 40s, the female leads are always wearing diamonds and the male leads are always giving them diamonds. The male will always give a diamond to their special gal as an enduring symbol of their undying love. This was not accidental. This is product placement. De Beers supplied those diamonds to spark demand. Bogart and Bacall sold out harder than Ringo Starr shilling Japanese applesauce. Look it up. In the original book, Gentlemen prefer blondes. The character of Lorelei Lee equates diamonds with many other well known precious gems, such as sapphires and rubies. When it came time for the Broadway musical and subsequent film, the screenwriters, Joel Stein and Leo Robin, elected to omit the references to the other gems and focus solely on diamonds, culminating in the now iconic song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Originally sung by Carol Channing in the musical, but made famous by Marilyn Munro in the film. Men grow calm as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square, cut, or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. There is no historical precedence to the phrase. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. It didn't exist before the film. It was something that was cooked up in 1939 during the De Beers advertising blitz, but it stuck, because if you wanted something to stick, you got Marilyn Monroe to do it. Diamonds are a girl's best friend is not a phrase, it's not an aphorism, it's not some wisdom passed down through the generations. It's a song in a musical about a gold-digging whore that was written during De Beers and N.W.A.'s blitz on reframing public perception. And using the sexiest woman in the world to sell something is, ironically, a tradition that has worked from time immemorial. To quote the same Ayer strategy report again, Quote, we spread the word of diamonds worn by stars of screen and stage, by wives and daughters of political leaders, by any woman who can make the grocer's wife and the mechanic's sweetheart say, and I quote, I wish I had what she has. End quote. Pussy. The most powerful substance in the universe. And writing off the success of that, NWA came up with this absolute banger of a slogan. The one that has lasted forever. Diamonds are forever. Diamonds are forever. Yep, that entire phrase is nothing more. Than a 1930s advertising campaign. It's not the wisdom of the ancients passed down from generation to generation. It's not some tablet written command from Sinai. It is exactly the same thing as saying finger-licking good. Diamonds are forever is bullshit. Diamonds are symbols of love, because just like love, diamonds are eternal and unbreakable. Which is two parallels you really want to draw when you're aligning your product to the institution of marriage. And of course, just like love and marriage, the idea that diamonds are forever is utter bullshit. Diamonds are the hardest thing in the world, sure, but like Confucius said, that which does not bend must break. And while diamonds can cut anything and in turn cannot be cut themselves, diamonds will shatter if you look at them the wrong way or even laugh in their presence. Diamonds can be chipped, burnt, fractured, discolored, stained, even incinerated if you try hard enough. They are absolutely not forever. This is one of the biggest lies in the history of fibbing. And I don't know if you've picked up on this yet or not, but Diamonds aren't valuable! The whole point of the Diamonds Are Forever campaign was to keep anyone from actually figuring this out. The James Bond novel and subsequent film, Diamonds Are Forever, wasn't part of the De Beers and Ayer campaign, but it might as well have been. So successful was the campaign that the phrase, diamonds are forever, entered into the collective cultural lexicon. It was just something that you said and took for granted. So much so that when Ian Fleming was writing his Bond books in the mid-1950s, he was inspired to write a story about the diamond trade while chatting to one of his old superior officers from World War II, one Sir Percy Silito! who was once the head of MI5 and then later became the head of security for De Beers. And also, Sir Percy Silito. I mean, come on. Sir Percy Silito. England cannot be a real place and none of the people in it are real. It's just a conspiracy of cartographers. You don't call someone that. You're having a laugh. Anyway, Ian Fleming has a chat to his old diamond buddy and writes a book about diamonds. And when it came time for Fleming to come up with a title for his James Bond novel about diamonds, naturally, the phrase Diamonds Are Forever came to mind because advertising actually rewires your brain, and one day I'll get around to a show about that and Eddie Bernays, I promise, but not today. Diamonds Are Forever is, simply, the greatest advertising campaign of all time. It changed how people think. It embedded an idea into an entire generation that simply didn't exist before the campaign. And that idea took root so wholly that said entire generation imparted that same idea on their children, who took it as word from on high, who then passed it on to their children, who are currently passing it on to their children, and all of it is utter bullshit. Diamonds are forever? De Beers. Diamonds are a girl's best friend? Hollywood via De Beers. Diamonds are the traditional wedding accessory? De Beers. The more expensive the diamond, the more you love your fiancé? De Beers. And somebody remind me what the only product De Beers sells is again? I'm drawing a blank. What is? What do they sell again? Oh, that's right! Diamonds! And to reiterate, to make sure that everyone is appropriately angry, the price of diamonds is a number that De Beers just pulls out of their ass whenever somebody asks how much diamonds cost. That's literally how it works. De Beers just makes up a number and says, yep, this much. Perhaps you might be familiar with the idea that a wedding ring, which must have a diamond on it because De Beers said so, a wedding ring must cost a man the equivalent of two months' salary. Have you heard that? It's a lot less common now, but older listeners will know that this was the informal metric for how much a man should pay for a ring for his bride to be. Two months' salary, otherwise you're a pencil dick loser who doesn't deserve love. I've actually seen a couple of romantic comedies, recent ones actually, where they say that a wedding ring should actually cost three months' salary, but two months is the classic amount. If you're not forking out two months of your wages for that entire year, you're a pathetic loser who will die alone, clutching at nothing as the void closes in. Do you know how De Beers worked out the amount of money for a wedding ring, this 2 months' salary, the amount of money that is quote-unquote, traditional, to spend on a wedding ring? De Beers just pulled it out of their ass. Somebody said, how about one month's salary? And somebody else said, nah, double it, and that's the price that you should spend on your fiancée, or otherwise you don't love her. They just said that you should fork over a sixth of your annual income for a ring. There's no reason behind it, there's no science, there's not even much psychology. De Beers just came up with a totally arbitrary guesstimate at what they thought people would pay for one of their overpriced hunks of glass, and then they doubled it, and people paid it. People, to this day, use the two-month rule as a baseline for how much to spend on an engagement ring. As I said, modern rom-coms still use this rubric. I think the film I'm thinking of here is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, but honestly, if you said a movie where Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson lean against each other in the poster, that really doesn't narrow it down to less than a dozen, so just any of those. All right, all right, all right. So the cultural tradition of spending two months' wages on a ring is something that De Beers plucked out of thin air nearly a century ago for an ad campaign. To put this into perspective, imagine if people in the year 2120 treated having an emotional outburst by giving somebody a snickers because everybody knows you're not you when you're hungry. It's the same thing. nwa again with an absolutely extreme grasp of how human psychology works, came up with the slogan, and I'm quoting here, How else can two months' salary last forever? end quote. And it fucking worked. It went gangbusters. How else can two months salary last forever? Spend it on a diamond ring. You know how else two months salary can last forever? Leave it in the fucking bank. If you do that, it will actually turn into more than two months salary because of interest. But no, De Beers wants that money in their bank, not yours. The idea of a wedding proposal with an engagement ring where you drop down on one knee and pop open a little box and say, Will you marry me? That's another De Beers advertising campaign. It's not actually a cultural thing, it's just something they came up with to sell their magic rocks. Surprise her with a diamond ring is a De Beers slogan. Why? Because in the 1940s, De Beers did some market research to figure out why their sales of diamonds were plummeting. Which tells you a bit about how disconnected from reality De Beers actually are. It might seem like a good question, why are our diamond sales going down? It's a reasonable question to ask, isn't it? But you've got to remember, what else was happening in the 1940s that might have curbed consumer spending a little bit? Was there some sort of global event that might have influenced what people would pay for a rock? The sequel to World War I, perhaps? So yeah, during the 1940s, De Beers' market research found that women, and I stress that it was women who answered these surveys, women decided that they didn't actually want expensive engagement rings. I know, can you believe it? Turns out women would much rather have their potential husbands took that two-month salary that would have gone towards a diamond engagement ring and put that money towards a house or a car or some magic fucking beans because at least beans will grow and make more beans. But again, none of that means money for De Beers, and that will not do. I just want to take a moment here to address this here and now. If anyone's getting upset about pronouns and traditional gender roles, you've got to remember, this is a history show, and we're talking about the 1940s. Back in this period, it was still illegal for women to have a bank account or for anyone to put it in the butt. There are much better hills to die on. you just got to remember that we're looking at history here, okay? I'm going to use him and her and wife and husband. It's just, that's how it was. So De Beers' strategy was to short-circuit that whole process of asking the woman by taking her out of the equation. We don't want women saying, hey, I don't actually want a diamond ring. We just remove that entirely. So they came up with yet another slogan, which was... Surprise her with a diamond ring. As in, don't give her a chance to tell you that that's a stupid idea. And again, it worked. Men were psychologically pressured into the idea that the best way to express love was to surprise a woman. Because it's a lot more fun when you surprise someone, isn't it? And this meant that they wouldn't ask their partner and have their partner say something stupid like... I actually don't want an expensive rock, I want a house. And this also short-circuited the female side of the equation because by having their man surprise them with a ring that had already been purchased would have meant having to reject a man that they loved and hurt his feelings, and then the rationale would start kicking in like, oh well, you know, he's already paid for it, and it is kind of pretty come to think of it, well, the damage is already done, we might as well keep the ring. NWIA's 1951 strategy review had this to say quote, The millions of brides and brides to be are subjected to at least two important pressures that work against the diamond engagement ring. Among the prosperous, there is a sophisticated urge to be different as a means of being smart the lower income groups would like to show more for their money than they can find in the diamond that they can afford it is essential that these pressures be met by constant publicity to show that only the diamond is accepted everywhere and recognised as the symbol of betrothal and quote, there you go straight from the horse's mouth just in case you think I was editorializing. No, that's actually what they thought. These advertising campaigns, Diamonds Are Forever, Surprise Her With A Diamond Ring, Diamonds Are A Girl's Best Friends, these campaigns were so successful that to this day, the year 2022, people still associate diamonds with love and marriage even though that connection didn't exist before the 1930s. If diamond sales were starting to dip leading into the 1930s, well, by 1944, De Beers' sales of diamonds had improved by nearly 50% on the back of these campaigns, and De Beers were back to making their customary obscene amounts of money. But as ever with De Beers, There was yet another layer behind all of this. Remember why they do everything they do. Diamonds are forever isn't just a catchy slogan, although it is one of the catchiest slogans of all time, but there is a much deeper psychology at work, and one that didn't come out until many, many years later. Diamonds are forever drove home the idea that diamonds were truly forever. If you buy a diamond, then you will have that diamond until the sun explodes. You will pass it down to your children, and they'll pass it down to their children, and it will remain in the family as a priceless heirloom because it will last, as one might infer, forever. And forever is a very long time. And De Beers really needed to embed the idea in everyone's psyche that they should hang on to these diamonds. That they should wear them until the day they die. And on that day, they'll be passed down to the next generation who will in turn wear them until the day they die. And will pass them on to the next generation and so on and so forth until Doomsday and Trumpet Sound. Because if anyone ever tried to sell that diamond then they would be introduced to the horrifying truth of the scam that De Beers had been pulling for nearly a century. You cannot resell a diamond, because diamonds are worth absolutely fuck all. So De Beers really needed to stop people from trying to sell diamonds. So not only were De Beers trying to sell people on the idea that their big, expensive diamond is the ultimate expression of love, and not only were they incepting people with the idea that they should never attempt to sell that diamond, they also had to give these people the sense that buying a used diamond, a second-hand diamond, that was somehow dirty. If you give someone a second-hand diamond, then you're a filthy degenerate who isn't worth marrying. What kind of pervert tries to propose with a second-hand diamond? Eww. They should be locked up on suspicion. If you were the kind of person who would try and get away with giving a second-hand diamond, then you should be in jail on suspicion where you belong with all the other degenerates and perverts. Sicko. In 1971, Harry Oppenheimer had this to say, quote, A degree of control is necessary for the well-being of the industry. Not because production is excessive or demand is falling, but simply because wide fluctuations in price, which have, rightly or wrongly, been accepted as normal in the case of most raw materials, would be destructive of public confidence in the case of a pure luxury such as gem diamonds, of which large stocks are held in the form of jewellery by the general public. End quote. Or, to put it another way, he admits that the whole thing is a scam with imaginary numbers pulled out of his ass due to a total monopoly on supply and demand that is outrageously illegal, but somehow manages to convince himself that he's the aggrieved party. So successful was the Diamonds Are Forever campaign that it was repeated around the world, with various tweaks made to suit the local culture, of course. Do you think De Beers were above raping a developing economy with the biggest cultural hangover in history at the most vulnerable point of their existence? Of course not. Post-war Japan was the ripest of fields for trying to sell their shitty, worthless product. Japan had very recently had 54 kilotons of hard reset dropped on their culture. This was the best possible time to introduce some new, air quotes here, traditions. In 1967, less than 5% of Japanese couples wore an engagement ring of any kind, much less a diamond ring. Enter De Beers, and as of today, it's over 60%. Why? Because if you don't buy an overpriced chunk of glass, then you're a pencil dick loser who doesn't deserve love or sex. Never underestimate the power of the pussy. One hair off of that thing will drag a freight train up a three-mile grade. Amen, brother. De Beers had noticed that the Japanese were desperately trying to westernize following the um, unpleasantness of the 30s and 40s. So they came in with their whole Diamonds Are Forever show and paraded it around as the best way to stick it to the emperor in style, and an entirely new market was born. Of course, the West never had a tradition of diamonds before the 30s, but the Japanese didn't need to know that. Hell, most Westerners still don't know that. What hope did Japan have at that point? And now, De Beers had a stranglehold on both sides of the Pacific, which is a big ocean. So the way that De Beers has structured things through all of their horizontal and vertical integration is that every year, De Beers determines how many diamonds will be allowed onto the open market. This is a number that they just make up. It's not based on any sort of metric. The purpose is simply to maintain scarcity. So if you're curious about how a company goes about making a roughly 24 tons of diamonds mined annually look somehow scarce, this is how you do it. And that 24 tons of diamonds mined globally annually, that's all that we know about. Personally, I don't buy it. I'd say they're hiding something there. So if you want to make 24 tons of diamonds seem scarce, you simply limit the amount of diamonds that are allowed onto the market. You just warehouse the bulk of it and don't tell anyone about it. And then you limit who is allowed to buy the diamonds. I mean, if just anyone off the street is allowed to buy diamonds wholesale, then the entire scam could fall apart. So it has to be an exclusive club of people who are allowed to get those diamonds out there into the world. People who you have already vetted. And then, you don't just sell the diamonds. No. You mix all of the diamonds in together to hide just how much and how much of what quality that you have. Just to keep everyone guessing. So diamonds don't just get sold as diamonds, they get sold as packages which is kind of complicated, but I'll try and simplify it if I can. You can't just buy diamonds. You have to buy bunches of diamonds as decided by De Beers, which ultimately doesn't matter because all of the sellers are affiliated anyway, but it's an extra level of obfuscation. So if you're a diamond man, you can't just buy 10 diamonds. You have to buy the diamond packages that De Beers puts out, and they might have the diamonds that you want, but mixed in with lesser quality diamonds that you don't want. Kind of like how the film industry works. Hey, it's future Devo again. I know, twice in one show. Time travel is easy when you have the power of editing. It's been brought to my attention that this might not be common knowledge, so I'll expand a bit on how the movie industry works in case you're one of the lucky people that didn't actually go to film school. I suffer so you don't have to. So imagine you're a movie theater, right? You own the local multiplex or whatever. You can't just buy the rights to screen a movie. You don't get to just walk up to Disney and say, one Spider-Man, please, and then you screen the new Spider-Man movie and make all of the money. Because that's all that people would buy. So you can't just do that. And believe it or not, this is a system that I actually believe in. It kind of sort of helps keep actual art alive. So the way it works is that movie studios will sell all of their films in bundles. And these bundles come with obligations to screen X amount of movies, Y amount of times. So studios have a whole bunch of movies on their books, and not all of them are broadly popular, and a lot of them are straight up dog shit but you have to do what you can to get them out there on movie screens. And this is where the packaging comes in. So a movie studio will say, yeah, you, you can screen Spider-Man, sure, but every time you do, you also have to run a session of the latest Daniel Radcliffe weird passion project or the Scaring 14 Colin stop buying creepy dolls and some freaky French movie that is entirely black and white and most of it is cigarettes with tits and an opera soundtrack in the background. So, if you want to screen Spider-Man, you also have to screen all of them. In case you were wondering why your local cinema keeps screening shit movies, that's why. Bundling. The diamond industry works kind of the same way. De Beers knows that not all of their diamonds are some Elizabeth Taylor-style infinity stone. There's some bruised fruit in there, too. So, they package these diamonds up into bundles and sell them. This is what they call a site and it happens 10 times a year, usually in London. It's called a site because use of an exclusive terminology makes people seem cool. So the diamonds go to market, but not a regular market. This one is also a make-believe market, because not everyone is allowed to buy diamonds. In fact, barely anyone is allowed to actually buy diamonds from the source of the diamonds. You have what are called site holders who are people who are allowed to go to sites and buy diamond packages. There are only 75 site holders in the world. So only 75 people on the planet are allowed to actually buy and then distribute diamonds. And then, at a site with the packages of the diamonds, you don't actually get to buy the packages of diamonds. You don't get to buy them outright, because this is an auction. Because capitalism. You get to bid on it and see if maybe someone else will pay more for the thing. Because capitalism is cool! And also, you don't get to see what's in the packages of diamonds. You just get told that there's a bunch of diamonds, and they all total up to a certain number of carats and quality of diamond. So, these site holders fight amongst themselves to win an auction for diamonds that they've never seen. And they will bid on these because sites are take it or leave it, so people are buying diamonds purely on speculation. And if you're wondering why anyone would spend millions of dollars buying a mystery box that may or may not contain the type of diamonds they actually want, think about how much of a cartel this is, and remember that if you make too much of a fuss at a site, then you're probably not going to get invited back. You lose your diamond privileges forever. Laissez-faire capitalism, baby! Isn't it just the bee's knees? And believe it or not, I'm trying not to make too many accusations or insinuations, but does any of this actually smell fishy to anyone out there? Does any of this sound like a healthy marketplace that benefits the consumer? I don't want to outright say that the diamond trade operates exactly the same way as a drug cartel. But it is looking, walking, and quacking like a drug cartel. And if you think that's a bit dramatic, then it's time for the next chapter of the show. The one that I call, fuck the Cold War, there's money to be made. In the 1950s, the Soviet Union was blowing up a large portion of the planet in weapons tests in their dick-measuring contest with the United States that we know of as the Cold War. And as a direct consequence of this, they blew up a large number of extremely deep holes in Siberia. And quite unintentionally, they discovered that Siberia has a lot of diamonds in it that nobody had previously known about. Large-scale nuclear tests, is there anything they can't do? Overnight, the Soviet Union became the second largest holder of diamonds in the world. This was a problem for De Beers, because they were used to controlling all of the diamonds. This new player was a huge threat to them. And this was the biggest threat that De Beers had ever faced, because up until this point, their competition had been other diamond traders. People they could buy or bully out of the diamond trade. Now they were about to go toe-to-toe with one of the world's two superpowers. The diamonds coming out of Siberia were small. They were nothing on the African or Australian diamonds, but a diamond is still a diamond, and the more that entered into the market, the more chance there was that everything would be revealed to be a scam. So De Beers went directly to Nikita Khrushchev and proposed a deal. The Soviet Union would partner with the De Beers Corporation, essentially making the USSR the eastern arm of the De Beers diamond market. and the Soviets. Agreed. So that's a neat little fact to have in your back pocket when anyone wants to wax lyrical about the perils of communism. Communism has never actually been tried. The USSR could and was as capitalist as anyone else when they felt like it. They just didn't make it public. So De Beers now has all of these Soviet diamonds in their system, which solved one problem but created another. Their stranglehold over supply and demand remained, but what to do with these Siberian diamonds? Sure, De Beers maintained the supply squeeze, but they'd just promised the Soviets that they would sell these Siberian diamonds, which meant that they actually had to sell them. It turns out it's a bit intimidating when one of your business partners has enough nuclear weapons to turn the planet into a diamond. And the main problem was that these Siberian diamonds were much smaller than anything else commonly available on the market, and De Beers had spent the better part of 50 years telling people that size matters, and that the bigger the diamond, the bigger your dick is. That's a lot of cultural inertia to try and turn around. And that's when De Beers came up with the concept of an eternity ring. An Eternity Ring is a second band encrusted with smaller diamonds that fits over top of your wedding ring, and it's used to symbolize... something. I say something because it didn't matter at all to De Beers what the fuck you were celebrating, just as long as you were celebrating something and doing it with a whole bunch of small diamonds that they needed to clear out of their inventory double quick. And once again, it worked. I'll quote directly from the website of Michael Hill Jewelers here, one of Australia's leading jewellery retailers, and I'll quote it in its entirety because it's actually pretty important to the whole point. And I quote, Eternity Rings are traditionally the third piece of a bridal ensemble. Eternity Rings are traditionally a band set with diamonds. While many Eternity rings feature stones all the way around the band, a lot of people opt for rings with stones set along the ring's tops and sides, which allows for greater comfort as well as resizing if needed. Since an Eternity ring symbolizes just that, eternity, and it's something that you'll wear forever, the most important part of choosing your ring is that it's something that you'll genuinely love. It's most common to receive your eternity ring when you and your partner celebrate a milestone wedding anniversary, such as 10 years. It's a way of acknowledging that as your marriage continues to evolve over time, you remain committed to each other and more in love than ever. Another popular time to gift an eternity ring is to celebrate the arrival of your first child together. Some couples choose other special moments to give an eternity ring, such as birthdays, or Christmas, or buying your first home, renewing your vows, or any other moment that is special and meaningful to the two of you. End quote. They sure say the word traditionally a lot there, don't they? Which is funny, because there is absolutely nothing traditional about it. Eternity rings are an entirely fictitious concept invented by De Beers in the 1950s to sell the new, smaller diamonds that they just bought a lot of from the Soviet Union. That entire copy from the jeweler's website? It is based around an utter lie, and here we are, 70 years later, quoting it like scripture. De Beers invented the idea of a second wedding ring that was completely festooned with tiny diamonds, so that they could double dip on the market of people who were already brainwashed into spending a shitload of money on their original wedding ring. One of the inherent problems De Beers had encountered with their marketing strategy was that by going all in on the concept of diamonds as a wedding necessity, they created a market that only bought their product once. Ideally, the actual permanence of marriage is something that I won't get into here. So by inventing the idea of a second wedding ring that you put over top of your first one, which was necessary because reasons, I mean, you come up with your own thing there, they could continue bilking the same rubes decade after decade. 10 year anniversary, 20 50, first home, first child, first shit taken together. Keep piling those diamonds on. We want everyone looking like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer is a golden giant. Hey, Homer, what'd you do? Get a haircut or something? Look closer, Lenny. Oh, I know what it is. You're the biggest man in the world now. And you're covered in gold. 14 karat gold? Take a hike, boss. I'm running things now. All hail King Homer. (laughs) It was a masterstroke. Go to any jeweler and any jewelry website, like I did, and look up Eternity Rings. They'll all have some prosaic copy about how important the tradition of Eternity Rings are, and all of it is absolute bullshit the tradition only extends back to the Cold War when the Ruskis blew up a chunk of Siberia with a nuclear weapon and realized that there were diamonds in the ground. So romantic our collective cultural heritage is. But why milk the same customers twice when you can come up with even wackier rings to get them to buy more and more and more? You know what's better than two diamond rings? Three! That's where the Trilogy Ring comes in. The Trilogy Ring traditionally symbolizes past, present, and future. Or in some markets it represents the Holy Trinity, or it represents the three Star Wars prequels. It's all the same thing, because the tradition of the Trilogy Ring dates all the way back to the 1980s when De Beers said, we need to sell more diamonds, make up another tradition. De Beers also realized, somewhat belatedly, that people generally have two hands. That's an entire hand that isn't wearing their product, and we can't have that, can we? Oh gosh, no. This is where you get right-hand rings, also known as dress or cocktail rings, but sometimes called independence or power rings. Because they're designed for women to express their girl power, their all-conquering feminist spirit, and the fact that they don't need no man to make them complete... They've got a diamond independence ring for that. And the best part of the independence ring? You buy it for yourself. You don't need to wait for no man to buy you a diamond ring. You're all the single ladies. You're every woman. You're strong and independent. And you buy that thing for yourself so that you can tell men to fuck right off and be every woman. And it fucking worked. In 2004... The Beers ran the slogan, Your left hand says we, your right hand says me. Women of the world, raise your right hand. Mm-hmm. Girl power, huh? Scarlett Johansson wore one when she collected her BAFTA award. Probably as a reminder that she married a Saturday Night Live cast member. When Sex in the City ended, all of the girls on the show got themselves independence rings to symbolize that they were the new wave of feminism. All of it was just because De Beers needed to keep flogging their diamonds. As Marx said, the only struggle is class struggle. And if you're only just figuring out that I'm a militant socialist after this many shows, I don't know what to tell you. You may have already guessed that the diamond market is a microcosm for all capitalism. And it has the inherent flaw that all capitalism has. It's a system driven by infinite growth. And infinite growth doesn't work. It's reserved for bacterium and viruses. Infinite growth means death. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when... I tried to classify your species. People need to keep buying diamonds, and they must always be new diamonds. Nobody should ever be allowed to purchase a second-hand diamond. That would be bad. Have you ever tried to sell a diamond? Good luck with that. All of this next part comes from a 1980s investigative report by The Atlantic titled, Have You Ever Tried to Sell a Diamond? I'll link it in the show notes. In 1970, journalist Dave Watts of the British consumer magazine Money Witch, and that's honestly the name of the magazine, Money Witch. Again, you cannot convince me that England is a real place. Anyway, this magazine conducted a study into the resale value of diamonds, or the total lack thereof. They bought a 1.42 carat diamond from a reputable London dealer for a then- 745 pounds, which is a bit over 8,000 pounds today, or $9,500 US. So they buy it in 1970 for 745 pounds. A year later, 1971, they tried to sell the same diamond. The best offer they got was 548 pounds. That's a 25% loss on investment. So Money Witch said fuck that, we're not selling, let's hang on to it for three years and see if this was just an aberration in the market. In 1974, they took the same diamond to Hatton Gardens, which is a district of London where a number of prestigious jewelers hold court. The diamond was passed around these De Beers associated diamond retailers, and not only were none of them willing to offer an estimate of how much the diamond was actually worth, When Watts came to the last retailer, he found that the diamond had mysteriously shrunk from 1.42 carats to 1.04. One of these licensed and world-renowned jewelers had switched his diamond while he wasn't looking, keeping the larger one for themselves and banking on the customer not noticing or subsequently shopping the gem around to other dealers. Because they're all upstanding people in the diamond industry, aren't they? Smelling that something was rotten in the world of diamonds, Watts proceeded to buy another diamond from a different licensed London dealer. He paid £2,500 for a 1.4 carat diamond. He then tried to sell the same diamond to a number of licensed dealers a week later. The best offer he got was £1,000. While this was going on, at the same time, the Dutch government tried the same thing with its Consumer Protection Ministry. They purchased a diamond and then tried to measure its resale value. They bought this diamond and then the very next day, they tried to sell it to see what kind of return on investment they get from it. The Dutch government tried 20 different diamond retailers, all of them accredited. One of them offered the Dutch government 10% of what they'd originally paid for the diamond. The other 19 just flat out refused. Because diamonds are, and I'm quoting the CEO of De Beers here, diamonds are inherently worthless. Tiffany's, as in the breakfast at Tiffany's jewelers, has a strict policy that they do not buy diamonds or offer refunds on diamond purchases. If you try and return a diamond that you bought from Tiffany's, they will straight up refuse to take it. Oh, they'll spin you a story about how you should hang on to that diamond because it's so valuable. And why would you ever want to sell such a treasure? Pass it down to your children. That's something that you should give down generation to generation. But at no point will Tiffany's ever take that diamond back. Because diamonds are trash. They always have been. And I'm interested to see what De Beers and the rest of the diamond world come up with next, because there's about to be another reckoning on the price of diamonds, perhaps the most extreme one to ever hit the industry, certainly bigger than the one that occurred in the 1930s and 1940s, because the market is about to be hit with an absolute tidal wave of surplus diamond stock. It's going to happen in the next decade or so, a total saturation of supply that not even De Beers can control. Because, ironically, Diamonds are forever. Or at least they are for about 75 years. The people who were getting married during the big Diamonds Are Forever Blitz, they're starting to die off in massive numbers. Don't be sad, don't, aww, that's just how time works. Enough time has passed that it's been a lifetime for all of the people who got swept up in the big diamond blitz of the 20th century. And every single one of the diamonds that they bought during this period still exists in pretty much the same condition that it left the shop. As shiny as the day that two months' salary was paid for it. And as the owners of these diamonds die off, those diamonds are getting thrown back into circulation. Te are about to be fucked with the very long dick of inflation. There's a joke in the diamond industry, among the jewelers and the resellers, that the biggest diamond mine in the world is actually in Florida. But it's not in the ground, it's pawn shops. Aside from the very small percentage of diamonds that have been destroyed, because remember, diamonds can absolutely be destroyed, and rather easily at that, aside from that statistical outlier, every single diamond that has ever been mined, cut, and sold, every single one of them is still in circulation. More are mined every year, and we still believe that they're somehow rare. Demand for diamonds has always been relatively stable, but the supply is going to go through the roof in the next few years. Because while diamonds might be forever, humans are not. It's hard to say what De Beers is right now as a company. After a number of antitrust suits were leveled against them in a number of countries on account of the truly staggering level of shady monopoly they had. De Beers divested into a number of other companies. In 2011, they were officially bought out by Anglo America LLC, which, you might recall, was the company founded by Ernest Oppenheimer, the long-term boss of De Beers during most of their hustle period. It's all a little nepotistic. And that's just the surface The shell game of De Beers runs so deep, with over a century worth of Byzantine deals and double deals and corporate obfuscation, that who knows which heads belong to the Hydra anymore. De Beers used to have over 95% of the global supply of diamonds, but since the 1980s that has dropped to about 50%. Which, if I didn't just anchor you by saying 95%, you'd say, holy shit, 50%, that's a huge percentage of any industry for any one company to have, how the hell do they get away with that? I mean, they made Microsoft split up for way less than that, and you'd be right. De Beers will tell you that they now control only about 50% of the world diamond trade, and maybe that's true, but it's also something that someone who ran 100% of something would tell you. But what do I know? I'm just a clown. I'm not a forensic accountant. Take my word with a grain of salt. As reluctant as I am to say, fellow podcaster, as fellow podcaster Joe Rogan might say, I'm just asking questions. And there's nothing sinister about that, is there? But what I do know is that no matter who is selling them, diamonds are still the most overpriced product in the history of mankind. They're just as worthless as they always were, and it's only going to get worse. They remain the biggest scam in the history of human civilization. And do you know what the worst part of all of this is? I can do this show detailing how much De Beers has screwed civilization with a pure scam, and nothing's going to happen. This isn't the first show that's outlined exactly how much of a scam, and it is a scam. This isn't the first show to lay it all out like that. I'm not even the thousandth person to do this. It's all there. It's all out in the open. It's not a secret. And even when people know all of it, it doesn't matter. Because we've all been indoctrinated our entire lives. Women will still want the rock. Men will still want to give them. De Beers spent a century incepting the entire human race, and it keeps working. And now that we have this spectrum of new genders, it's only a matter of time before De Beers finds a way to hook them too. Show your pride with the traditional symbol of the queer community, the diamond! To quote NWA once more quote, since nineteen thirty nine an entirely new generation of young people has grown to marriageable age. To this new generation, a diamond ring is considered a necessity to engagements by virtually everyone to the point that those who cannot afford to buy a diamond at the time of their marriage would defer the purchase rather than forgo it end quote. De Beers and nwi -er successfully made it inconceivable for anyone to think outside of diamonds. The tsunami of cheap diamonds that's about to hit the market is going to hurt, and millennials are known for bucking tradition and the generations after them even more so, so there is hope for the future. Maybe. But the largest con in the history of mankind has been running unchecked for over a century now, and it could have been stopped overnight at any point. Just gone. Like a fart in a bath. And all that needs to happen is for everyone to collectively acknowledge that diamonds are stupid, and we don't need them to express love for each other that the best way to show your love for someone is to actually, you know, love them without the need for an overpriced hunk of rock. We do that, and all of this vanishes like a soap bubble. Instantly. Never to be seen again. But ladies, gentlemen, non-binary proposees, I want you to look deep within yourselves, and ask yourselves, and be honest here, be brutally honest, would you actually marry someone who didn't put a ring on it? The most powerful force in the universe, ladies and gentlemen. Amen, bro. There's a companion piece to this show, but it's only for people on Patreon. I know, I know, dirty elitism, but your boy's gotta eat, alright? So there is a companion piece to this show and it is about the biggest diamond heist in history and goddamn if you don't want to know about that. Diamonds, even though they're not intrinsically valuable, are still extrinsically valuable and as such people are always trying to steal them. That's why we have so many heist movies that have diamonds as the MacGuffin. And the largest diamond heist in history is so crazy and fun that it actually sounds like an Ocean's Eleven plot. And patrons you can jump on over and listen to the story of the greatest Diamond Heist of all time. It won't be out for a couple of days, because these shows are a hell of a lot of work to get out there and into your ears, but it will be out there soon. Unless you're listening to this show at least a couple of days in the future, in which case you won't know what I'm talking about and I probably shouldn't have lampshaded it. But anyway, awesome show about diamonds over on Patreon. Uh, Everyone else? you can head on over to patreon.com historygotime and decide if that's something that you'd like to hear. Or you could listen to a show on the world's greatest warship that never actually made it out of the harbor. Or a show about why people from Hartlepool are called monkey hangers. Or a show about how Japanese baseball is cursed by the ghost of Colonel Sanders. Or a bunch of other cool things like that. As ever, if that's not your jam, then fair call. I get you. Could you please do the like and subscribe thing? Trust me, I hate doing this call to arms, as the horrible ad people call it. I hate doing this as much as you hate hearing it, but I can't do this show alone, and it honestly does help, and it helps a lot more than you probably realize. So please, like, subscribe, share, send to a friend, send to an enemy. Other than that, if you don't hear from me within six to eight weeks, then I've been got by Big Diamond. Don't believe the police reports it wasn't a suicide. But other than that, I will be back with more shows in the future to delight and entertain you. And finally, I would like to give a shout out to Gary over in the land of Saints and Scholars. Happy birthday, Gaz. I hope you enjoyed how much I took the piss out of the English. I didn't exactly write all of that with you in mind, but I do hope that you and Alan were in the mix. Slauncher. Until then, be good, and if you can't be good, be good at it. All the thousand names to De Beers as to call. I actually said to De Beers as to call themselves there, and I was tempted to leave it in. It's a good girl. It's okay. I'm just recording a show, to good girl. I'm just recording a show for the good girl. She doesn't need to be the barrow. She doesn't need to be the barrow, no. You go back to sleep. Here's huh? a good girl. She's a good little history dog. A good little history dog. Jesse the History Dog says hi everyone.